Well, at this time, we are going to transition now to the preaching of the Word of God. So I'd like to ask you to open up your Bibles now to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Welcome to our new sermon series that we're starting this morning, Sermon on the Mount, a portrait or a portrait of a disciple. And this morning is really going to serve as an introduction to our new sermon series. So next couple of months, church, we're going to be going through, you could say probably one of the most famous sermons in the Bible. It's only three chapters, Matthew 5, Matthew 6, and Matthew 7. Only three chapters, but its impact has been immense. And if you're here this morning, there's some of you probably did not grow up in church. Maybe you haven't read through much of the Bible. I'm so glad you're here. Even if that's you, you know what? Undoubtedly, you have heard quotes from the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe you did not even understand or know of its origins. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Matthew 5, 5. How about this? Ever heard this? Turn the other cheek. Matthew 5, 39. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. I know most of you know this one. The Lord's Prayer, right? The Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That which I just prayed a few moments ago. Matthew 6, 9 through 13. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. How about this one? Give this one a lot in our culture today. Judge not that you not be judged. Matthew 7, 1. Then there's the golden rule. We know that, right? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. That's right. Comes from the Bible, Matthew seven, Sermon on the Mount, verse twelve. And for those who grew up in high, excuse me, high school, those who grew up in children's ministry, I had to throw this one in here. The wise man built his house upon the rock, and the rains came down, and the floods came up. Yeah, a lot of you know this song. I'm not going to attempt to sing it, but it's going through my mind right now. Well, this is a famous sermon in many ways. The meaning of the sermon is perhaps the most debated and controversial of Christ's words. Perhaps partly because of the wide exposure of this sermon, there are vast and diverse interpretations. Thus the need this morning for this introductory sermon. But I want to do more than just inform you this morning. I want to inspire you. I want to give you something, a biblical vision to live for. So with that in mind, let us pray for that to occur this morning in our hearts by the grace of God. Well, dear Lord, we come to you and we ask that you this morning would override all our deficiencies by the sufficiency of Christ. We ask this morning, Lord, that we would live a life worthy of the gospel, that we would dream dreams worthy of the gospel calling, 
So Lord, we ask this morning that you would use your word, that you would use your truth to do just that, we pray by your spirits. Amen. Amen. Well, if you've been with us the past several weeks, we've been talking a fair amount, actually a lot about dreaming. That was Al's sermon last week from Galatians about dreaming God's gospel dreams. You know, asking God to birth dreams in our hearts, his dreams, in which we're free, free from fear and free from any sense of performance. That we'd be free to take God at his word, to put feet to what God has placed in our hearts. So in a sense, we've been talking about dreaming about God wants us to do. Well, this sermon series, Sermon on the Mount, we're gonna dream, but it's, it's thinking intently about who or what God has called us to be and what God is making us to be as his disciples. For in this sermon, God is showing us what it means to be a disciple. What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? He is giving us a portrait of a disciple. He's giving us a picture. It's the byline of our whole sermon series. And church, to be a disciple of Christ is nothing less than radical, nothing less than countercultural. Christ is giving us in this sermon a radical vision. It's a moral vision. It's a portrait of transforming grace. Now, I would say most of you here, I would venture to bet, love what we may call the before and after photos, right? At least the kind that capture the good type of transformation, the radical transformation. It's why we like the, the fixer-uppers, right? House TV shows, right? We love seeing an old, outdated dilapidated house transformed into a beautiful, spacious, airy, and light home in which to live. We love the before and the after shots. It's why we love to look at those radical before and after weight loss photos. And I know a lot of you look at them. Sometimes you're just clickbait, okay, on my screen, right? These weight loss programs. But we like to look at it, don't we? I mean, some of the photos, the before and after are stunning. But it's more than just cool. It also inspires. Imagine if you were to do more exercise. Not say you don't exercise, but do more exercise. Imagine if you were to eat a little healthier. And imagine if you saw a photo of yourself one year from now. A picture of you, perhaps weighing less, perhaps having more muscle tone, perhaps having a clearer complexion or brighter eyes. Even better, imagine if you had a video of yourself a year from now, of doing exercises, of doing those deep knee bends, which are getting harder and harder to do. A video of you dancing, like you can only dream, of you doing wind sprints. That was you. What would that mean to you to see that video? Things that you've only dreamed about now. Wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't that be encouraging? 
I mean, we would still have to work to get our bodies into that state of being, right? We saw it, but we still got to exercise to get there. We still have to say no at times to that double-decker chocolate fudge cake with moose track ice cream, right? We still got to exercise discipline, but you know what you're shooting for. You know where you're going. You know where you've been called, and that's you. A clear vision of who you are becoming and God is calling you to be in Christ all by his grace. Well, church, we have that portrait. We have that photo. We have that video. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's not a portrait of your physical body or muscle tone. It's a portrait of a changed heart, one whose will and ways are completely oriented and surrendered to God in such a way that your life is one expression, continual expression of love for God and love for neighbor. Church, I I need to see that portrait. I need to have that vision upheld as a Christian. But that vision doesn't begin by simply looking at the portrait of discipleship. It begins by looking at the portrait maker, and that's Christ, by looking at the painter, for he is the portrait maker. We're going to start with that point, number one, Christ, the portrait maker. You see, to properly understand and interpret the sermon, we must start with the teacher of this sermon, Christ himself. To do that, we're going to read the verses leading up to the Sermon on the Mount. So look back in your Bibles to chapter four. We're going to start with verse 23. And we're going to take a look at Christ, the portrait maker. It's where we begin, church. Just to fill you in up to this point in Matthew, Jesus has been baptized, anointed with the Spirit. He's gone into the wilderness for 40 days of fasting, being tempted by Satan himself. He has passed the test. He has chosen his disciples. And now he's beginning his public ministry. We pick up at verse 23 of chapter four. And he, that's Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Now, verse one, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Verse two of chapter five begins the Sermon on the Mount. But that's not where we begin. We must understand the backstory of this sermon because the backstory really is the story. It's the identity and the commission of Christ, our portrait maker. Look back at verse 23 again. What was Jesus doing throughout Galilee in the region? He was what? Teaching. He was what? Proclaiming. He was what? He was healing. It's immediately apparent that Jesus is on a mission. And this sermon, oh, it's part of that mission. 
It's a teaching mission and it's a healing mission. And it involves, see that phrase, catch it? The gospel of the kingdom. It's what we've been singing about this morning. But you may ask, well, what is the gospel of the kingdom? Well, gospel is good news. It's good news about this kingdom. What's this kingdom? The kingdom is the ministry and reign of Jesus. It's God coming from heaven to earth to establish his reign and his role among his people in his kingdom. That's what we're talking about this morning. You can't properly understand this sermon without understanding that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the savior of the world who has come to earth to usher in his kingdom. You see, Jesus, this is important because I've heard this read so often. It's like Jesus is ascending the mountain, like he's some, just some rabbi dispensing some sage wisdom and little tips on how to live. That's not that Jesus portrayed here. He's the king who has come, not just to paint pictures and to tell us how to live. He has come to change us from the inside out. He has come to fit us for his kingdom. If you don't keep this in mind, you'll be tempted when you read this sermon. You'll be tempted this week, and I hope you'll read this sermon more than once this week in preparation for this important series. But if you don't keep that in mind who Jesus is, you know what? You're gonna read this sermon. You're gonna feel like it's one big tease. You're gonna read verses like 5, Matthew 548, where it says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And you're just gonna wanna throw up your hands. I quit, I give up. See, friends, Jesus is not just giving us a portrait of a disciple and saying, look, (laughs) you don't measure up. Keep looking, you're a failure. No, Jesus, our Messiah, the savior of the world is saying, look, this is what I'm calling you to. And this is what I'm making you into as a disciple, as a follower of Christ, all by my grace. A church, Jesus is not just bringing a teaching. He's bringing a kingdom and he wants to reign and to rule in your heart. And he's committed to that task in each one of his followers. You see, the portrait maker is also the disciple maker. He shows us who we're to be. He makes a portrait. And then by his grace, he makes us to be like that portrait as we follow him. This doesn't mean that we don't have issues. <laughs> you read the Sermon on the Mount. It doesn't mean you don't have anxiety issues. It's addressed in the sermon. It doesn't mean you don't have anger issues. That's addressed in the sermon. It doesn't mean you don't have lust issues. Well, that's addressed in the sermon. No, sanctification, growth, maturing, becoming like Christ takes work. It takes real work. But it does mean this. For every glance you take at this portrait as you read it, church, take two glances at the portrait maker. So here's the warning. If we read this text and all we do is stare at the portrait without any reference to its maker, no, 
what Porter's going to do? It's going to mock you. It's going to beat you up. Understand that some of the most bluntest, the toughest commands in all scripture are found in these three chapters. If all you're doing is staring at the portrait, you're going to say, yeah, forget the healthy diet. Yeah, I know that's who you're calling me to be. Yeah, out with the tofu, out with the greens, in with the pizza. I'm done, right? Workouts are over. That'll be the temptation. You know, this week I was reading Matthew 5, 46. It says this in the sermon. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? You know, I read that I thought, I guess I don't have any reward. I mean, my love is so conditional at times. It's shocking. I mean, it still shocks me. I'm just being real how conditional my love is. I mean, Lord, I, I love those who love me. I do. But those who don't love me, those who hate me, that's another story. I can look at that. I can, Lord, I'm a failure. Lord, how, how can you ask that of me? He can ask that of me because Christ did it. He loved us, sinners who were his enemies. He came to earth to live the life that we couldn't live in our place, to die the death that we deserve, to deliver us from the rule of sin, the tyranny of sin, to place us under his rule in his kingdom. He came, he loved and died for the sinner, for you and me, his enemies. And he's asking me as his follower, as a disciple to do the same by his grace. You understand the portrait that Christ is making in one sense of himself. We're called to be conformed to the image of Christ. Just, I'm just making you like me. That's my goal. That's the vision. In fact, the rest of the book of Matthew, really, I believe in many ways, is an example of how Christ lives out the very commands of the Sermon on the Mount. He's not just calling you to it, he lived it. He said, by my grace, that's what I'm making you into as my followers. Do you get it? So the answer isn't to stop looking at yourself in the mirror. That's depressing, (laughs) you know? It's not like, stop looking in the portrait here. It's like, that's just condemning. No, we need honest self-assessment. We gotta look what the scripture has to say about us. We need the work and the conviction of the Holy Spirit as we look at that portrait because we're gonna find that we don't measure up in many ways. But when we do so, we must look at the portrait with eyes of faith, eyes of faith, not in ourselves and our own ability, but eyes of faith in the portrait maker, the one who is the disciple maker, who is making you as a disciple into his image. And if you start to look at this portrait with eyes of faith, as you read this sermon, you know what'll happen? Your faith will grow and so will courage. And I believe you're going to see change. What kind of change? That's the second point. Let's paint that picture of this disciple from the Sermon on the Mount. Point number two, Christ disciples the portrait. What characterizes this portrait of a disciple? Well, number one, you'll see immediately as you read, it's obedience from the heart. It's no less than the fulfillment of the new covenant. It's what the prophets of old had said long ago before Christ came. Ezekiel 36, 
26 and 27. Read these words. Here's the promise. The promise of the new covenant that is ours now in Christ. Says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's stunning. Who's doing that? That's the work of Christ through his spirit. I don't have it on the screen. I just want to get here as well, another well-known new covenant promise from Jeremiah 31, 33. Just hear it. It says this. This is God. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. Church, what's being spoken about here is obedience from the heart. It's a new heart. It's a transformed heart. Jesus is contrasting this type of heart, obedience, with the externally focused obedience of people of his time who are called the Pharisees. They were the one who stressed outward conformity to God's rules and laws and commands, but they missed the heart. They missed the motive. Jesus, in this sermon, he's painting a picture of a greater righteousness, a righteousness that is greater than simply the outward conformity of the Pharisees. He's painting a picture of greater righteousness than that of the world. All the teaching in these three chapters revolve around this theme of greater righteousness. In other words, obedience from the heart. We read Matthew 5, 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is painting a picture of a whole heart united in motive and deed, a heart that is saturated with mercy and grace and filled with peace. A person whose heartbeat like is in sync with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's not in sync with the Pharisees or the ways of the world. A heart that is so transformed and set upon the promises of God that people can despise you. People can hate you because of your convictions, because of your lifestyle. And you know what? And you can rejoice. You can rejoice. Matthew 5, 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Just this, this is amazing. It's totally counterintuitive. Rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward is great in heaven. We're gonna talk more about that in the coming days. But listen, church, you agree with me? That's radical. That's radical. That's a way of being and living that is totally distinct from the world. It's a countercultural life. It's a counterintuitive life, which speaks the transforming effects of God's grace. It's a life that is radical about sin. Just listen to these verses once again from the sermon, 529. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off 
and throw it away. It's a life that is radical about reconciliation. 5, 39, and 40. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you, would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. It's a life that is radical about love. 5, verse 44. Love your enemies. Just love them. Pray. Pray for those who persecute you. Once again, we need to unpack those verses. We, we, we will in the weeks to come. But what I want you to catch here, church, is the shock value. This is stunning. And it's meant to shock. It's meant to be. See, church, this is not the thinking of the world. Let's be honest. This isn't our thinking, right? A lot of the time either. It's alien. It's radical. But what Jesus is doing here in this sermon as we go through it is this. He's not just asking you to be radical for radical sake, okay? Just want you to be different, to be different. That too can be worldly thinking, can it? I just want to be different from everyone else. It could be a subtle form of pride. That's not what's going on here. He's been talking about you and I being different than the world so we can be our little hermits, living in our little bubbles, separate from the world and filled with self-righteousness. Now, that's what the Pharisees are doing. And he had some words for them. That too is worldly pride masquerading some spirituality. No, a truly radical way of Christ-centered living will result in missional living. It will have a transforming effect, not only on you, but on those around you as well. And that leads to the last point, a missional way of living. You understand, right? We're not gonna influence the world as Christians by simply pursuing the same dreams, pursuing the same ambitions, pursuing the same bank accounts, pursuing the same cars to drive, but just being a little nicer doing it. That doesn't impress the world, church. It doesn't. It's not impressive. No, the portrait that we have here on the sermon is of a transformed heart living in a radical way which makes a lasting impression on the world, on those who do not yet know Christ, those who are not yet followers of him. That's why he calls his countercultural disciples the salt of the earth and the light of the world. You know, recently I was just doing some life planning and assessment. I was using some assessment tools and one of the questions that was asked, it was a simple question, but it was brilliant. It was just, it was simply this. Take a moment to think about two or three people you most admire. Who are they? Which qualities do they possess that you wish you had? Think about that. It's just a secular good assessment, but let's spiritualize it as well. Think of those who had the most influence on your life. Maybe even God used to bring you to a saving knowledge of him. What characterized those individuals? Why do they stand out to you? Well, as I started listing individuals, what do they have in common? These are people who were different. I was going back to my youth, my youth pastor, Jeff, and going back to college, my friend, Stan. You know, they didn't just go with the flow. They had the courage to march to a different drumbeat. 
And it was a gospel drumbeat. They were the salt of the earth. They were the light of the world. Church, this is the stuff of disciple making. You know, it's interesting about a, I think last year we kind of introduced, you know, who we are as a church. Just trying to impart vision. We mentioned this. We said, as a church, yeah, we are disciples who are disciple makers, who are spirit-led, relational, radical, and missional. And as we laid that out, it's interesting. The most questions came with the descriptor of radical. It was a good question. They asked, well, what do you mean radical? Church, what I mean is Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. That is the radical that we're talking about. You have your answer. See, being radical is ultimately about putting our trust in our Lord and Savior. It's aligning our lives with his kingdom priorities and seeking his righteousness. What does that look like? It may mean just not being anxious. Do not be anxious. We trust in our Lord and our Savior to provide all we need. We read in Matthew 6, verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. It's not being anxious about the political climate of our country, the state of our economy, our jobs, whatever it may be. No, radical means this. Verse 34, chapter six, therefore, excuse me, 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. God's gonna provide for you. Radical people are crazy enough to believe it. I can seek him first. I can put all my eggs in that basket and God's gonna provide. That's radical in our day. I don't need to be anxious. I have any father who did not spare his own son but gave him up for him. Will he not graciously give us all things? Of course he will. I believe it. I'm gonna live like it. That's the radical we're talking about. It means asking. When I do have a need, it means asking. It means seeking. It means knocking. Verse, chapter seven, verse seven. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. So when you have a need, you ask. No need's too small. No need's too good, too big. I'm gonna ask. I'm coming to my Lord and Savior. It means I'm seeking his will. I wanna live according to his will. I wanna live the dreams and the gospel dreams that he has placed and revealed to me in the Bible. I wanna live that. I'm seeking to do so. It means I'm knocking. When I don't see an answer, you know what? I'm gonna keep knocking. Why am I gonna keep knocking? Well, it says here in chapter seven, for everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? The radical person is crazy enough, church, to believe that, to ask and to keep asking. Maybe you stopped asking. You stopped seeking. 
you stop knocking. The radical person persists because he knows the God he serves. He knows not just a portrait of a disciple, but he knows the portrait maker and he knows what he's making you into his disciple who follows you and he will provide. What I've noticed about radical people, it's really cool. They don't even know they're radical. That's the best thing about it. They're just following their savior. They're believing him. They have the audacity to believe in his promises. That God, the portrait he has actually presented in the sermon is what? Yeah, God's making me and you. They believe it. They don't even know it. They're radical, but the world sees it. They know. As we learn to radically follow Christ, we will spiritually flourish and prosper under his reign and rule. We won't just grow as disciples. Here's the point. We'll also grow as disciple makers. So what I love about the sermon series is it touches on a number of things that we've been talking about here at Palm Vista for a while, about being disciples who are disciple makers. What Kyle prayed about this morning. In fact, we've used this phrase. I love it. It's a helpful phrase for me. A disciple, be one, make one. This sermon, the Sermon of Christ on the Mount, is about being a disciple. But in being the disciple that God has called us to be, as a follower of him, He's positioning us to be a disciple maker as well. The book of Matthew concludes with these words and we'll conclude these words as well and bring it full circle. In Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20, we read these words. Now the 11 disciples, this is the very end of Christ's life, his death, he's risen from the dead. And now here are his last words. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Skip to verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And catch this next part, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Where did the disciples go? You catch that? They went to the mountain, the mountain in Galilee. I don't believe, church, that was a coincidence. They went to the mountain. Where was Christ first teaching in Matthew? On the mountain in Galilee. Where are Christ's last words to his disciples? on the mountain in Galilee. When Jesus said, go make disciples, teaching them all that I've commanded, the connection I think is made. It's clear. They were called to go forth and teach the very teachings they had heard on that very same mountain. What was that? The sermon on the mount. What's the point? Friends, Jesus is summoning us to discipleship, a life of discipleship and disciple making. That's what this sermon is about. He's giving you, he's given me a vision, a portrait of what it looks like to be one of his disciples. And he's calling us to live 
in the reality of that. He's calling us to live in the good of that. And he's calling us to pass it on, portraits and all. That's the invitation and the encouragement we need. And we're gonna get it in the weeks to come. With that in mind, let's pray and I'll invite the worship team to come on up at this time. Well, dear Lord, our confidence this morning is not in ourselves. Our confidence is not in our own abilities. Our confidence is in you, in Christ alone, that you would fit us for your kingdom, that that which you have called us to that you would make us into. So Lord, as we labor, as we work, we place our faith in you, that we would be followers who live lives worthy of the gospel, whose lives shine like stars, as lights and as beacons in this fallen world, that many may come to know the source of our strength and the source of the grace. You, O Christ, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Let us stand. Let us take a look once again. Crown him with many crowns. I'm sorry I didn't tell you that. Let's take a look at the portrait maker. It's where we begin. It's where we must end, folks. Let's do it. Let us cast our eyes upward. Let us sing with our hearts in joy and in faith.